Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Rene Marois, PhD. He's a professor of psychology. He's the Winkle Reed Family Chair in Neuroscience. We're going to talk about uh, his work in the Marois Lab. They deal with two main topics. They focus on understanding the neural basis of attention in humans. They use tools like fMRI and things like that. Uh, they're also going to understand the neural basis of limits of your ability to pay attention. Uh, why can we only, you know, attend to a few objects at a time, those kinds of things. So we're going to focus in on those two topics, you know, unintended. And uh, welcome, Renee. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and what got you what got your attention that attention. <laughs> so I started as an undergraduate at, in college in in Quebec studying geophysics, and my roommate uh, at the time uh, was in psychology, and he had a class in physiological psychology, and he left that textbook hanging around on the table, on the kitchen table, and I just started perusing it, and I really found the uh, field interesting, the topic of trying to understand how the the brain begets the mind. And at the same time also, or, or soon after that, my uh, mother had a car accident that led to brain lesion in the frontal lobes, which is very well known to affect behavior, especially the temperament of uh, the person. And the transformation that I saw in uh, my mother was very eye-opening about how the brain um, begets the mind and, and define who we are. And then I switched to studying neurobiology as an undergraduate and then went on to study the relationship between the brain and the mind in humans using functional neuroimaging, uh, focusing particularly on attention and, and the related topics of capacity limits of information processing, working memory, and, and awareness, because those were fascinating questions to me. I don't know. You know, it's up to you. If you don't want to say it's totally fine, but was your mom affected? Like, was her behavior affected? And, you know, can you talk about it a little bit or... Like I said, if you don't, if you're not comfortable, it's totally fine. Yeah. Some of the audience might know about the case of Phineas Gage. He was a railroad foreman more than a century ago, who uh, essentially, due to a accident while at work, had this iron pipe essentially go through his frontal lobe. And uh, he survived the uh, event, but his behavior completely changed. He used to be a very respected leader of his team, very congenial personality. And after that lesion, he became very irascible, easily irritable, would curse like a sailor when he didn't do that beforehand, had very short temperament after that and and couldn't even hold the job after the event. And that was a clear sort of classic case of 
of how a lesion in the prefrontal cortex can lead to drastic behavioral changes. And my mother had also a prefrontal lesion that uh, led to some of these characteristics that I just mentioned that were associated with Phineas Gage. So it was certainly difficult to see uh, someone you love and who's been obviously very important in one's life to change overnight almost behavior and really cannot do, one cannot do much about it on their own. And uh, it means I'm sorry to hear that. Well, it's hard about the brain and, and behavior. Okay. I understand. So you've had a personal experience with family. So what did, what did all this lead to? Like what types of research questions did you, uh, did you end up studying and are you studying because of all this? Yeah. So we have perhaps the organ, which is the most complex in the known universe, our brain. And it allows us to do so many things, to be able to interact with each other, to have thoughts, desires, imagine the future, invent uh, things. But at the same time, we show severe capacity limitations. It's, it's really hard to focus on more than one thing at a time. We are inherently bad at multitasking. If someone gives you their phone number, you're going to have a hard time keeping it in mind unless you quickly punch it in your cell phone. So we have 100 billion neurons, or 87 more precisely, and each of them on average making 10,000 connections. So massive parallel processing capacity is really defines what the, the, the human brain is about. Yet, we can't really do more than one task at a time, more than one task at a time well. We can hardly remember online more than just a few digits. Um, how is that possible? Why with you know, Our working memory is very constrained, is that what you mean? Yeah, our working memory is very capacity limited. It's often, depending whether we talk about visual working memory or auditory working memory, verbal working memory, it's a few items, maybe four in, or five or, or up to seven items that we can maintain in, in working memory. It's very limited. How's that? Okay. Why, why does that happen? So that's a question. Well, maybe, that's a, maybe it's a practical limit. But what are your thoughts so far in that question? Yeah, so I, they, they, they are... First of all, there are a limited number of effector organs we have, right? We have two limbs, we have two legs. There's a limited number of things that we can do at a time with an act upon. Uh, so would it make sense to be able to process many different thoughts if we're not able to act upon them? So that's, that's more higher level. Another limitations that seems to to be more brain based is that uh, essentially our capacity limitation um, may be the flip the side of of the coin that allows us to have a very general learning capacity. We're able to learn tasks very quickly. In my lab, we have all the graduates coming in. We tell them to do a novel task and they learn it, they can learn it maybe in just a, a few minutes and they're, mm. and they're able to execute that. We can learn and we are very 
flexible in our behavior. We can adapt very quickly to our environment. Look at the limit of multitasking. You know, a lot of people have said, oh, multitasking. And there's been med- much, much literature that says multitasking doesn't work. You know, switching uh, causes you to lose attention. So it, it seems like in the end, people are uh, really unable to do maybe more than one thing at a time well and with full attention. So maybe that's the governor or the bottleneck in all this. Yes, I think you're right on this, that our ability to to be flexible, to essentially acquire novel information and novel responses associated with this information means that we must be, we must have the capacity for neural substrate that is very flexible. But the cost to it is the inability to, for this flexible system to be able to do more than one of those flexible tasks at a time, essentially. So it's, it's the, the, in other words, our inability to multitasking may be the cost of our flexibility in behavior. Okay. You're absolutely right that in almost every cases, multitasking is a bad idea. It's, it's a bad idea um, whether uh, you are working on the computer and, and paying attention to someone else. I'm talking, I'm, I've often had cases, uh, for instance, when I teach of students with their laptops open, and it's not necessarily for taking notes. <laughs> and it comes at a cost of being able to really paying attention and absorbing really what the teacher is saying. We all know about the danger of multitasking while driving, but that cost is not only about when you hold a cell phone in your hand, even with even when you are not having your cell phone your, on your hand, there are still costs associated with diverting some of your attention to maintaining a conversation that otherwise you would use your attention to really concentrate on the road. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Well, look, we've got our reticular activating system. You know, we've got uh, our ability to be flexible and a little bit of multitasking. But again, it, just, it comes at serious trade-offs. So I would just, you know, I would assume that the brain and, and all its systems are made this way for a very good reason. I would guess there's probably unavoidable trade-off. If we want you know, to be able to multitask, then what, what kind of a brain would be able to do that? And what would it have to give up in order to be able to do that effectively, for instance? Maybe that's a way to ask it. I don't know. Yeah. And it, it's the... the... We obviously are able to learn new tasks. We are able to form habits. Our brains are very good at detecting patterns in uh, the environment. And, and if we always respond in the same way, then essentially we can develop more of a automatic behavior. Like, look at driving. You know, I've driven places and I think, how did I get here? Oh, no. 
you know, it becomes so automatic sometimes you don't even know what you're doing and you just get somewhere. Or or when we've moved in the past, I'll, I'll drive to my old house and my wife's like, where are you going? Oh, yeah. Oh. It takes me a few weeks to go to the new house because I'm literally programmed, it feels like, to go to the old one. Exactly. That's a, a great example uh, of it where we are essentially offloading behavior that is very routine uh, off our mind so that we can concentrate and pay attention to uh, other things while we're executing tasks that are very automatic. You know, driving between two very common places is, is a really good example of it. Obviously, we can walk as well without interfering with our thinking as well. So it's not like all of our behavior is incompatible with multitasking. Uh, some are more innate, obviously, like walking. Some are more acquired. And obviously, you also need to to, to practice walking as, as, as you grow up, as you know. But some of the habits that we have are more acquired as an adult. The good example that you just brought up is the one of, of driving as well. So, yeah. It seems like, uh, like I'll give you an example. I've done ballroom dancing for probably 15 years, you know, with my wife. And I've noticed, you know, at first your attention's inward because you're learning the moves and all that. And then when you get much better, you can, you know, your attention can go outwards to your partner. And when you and your partner, you know, are pretty good at it, then you can pay attention to music. You know, a lot of it becomes automatic. And um, I remember in the learning process, it felt overwhelming. You got to turn here. You got to hold your head this way. You gotta, da, da, da. It was just too much. But after a lot of things became automatic, now it's okay. Now there's like room in my brain and my wife's brain where we can do more stuff because the other stuff has become habit or automatic or, you know, non-thinking. So I, I think that's a path for people that want to do more, let's say, in a certain vein is that whatever they try to do, they have to make as much of it as, as automated and non-thinking as possible. When it gets to that level, then your mind opens up to do more. You know, my armchair analysis here. Yes. Uh, the ballroom uh, dancing example is another is another great example uh, here. I I remember when I started learning to ski, how my instructor was saying, let's baby steps and let's focus on, on one thing at a time. And once I mastered one aspect, then we, we added another aspect and that because the, the first one became more automatic, more learned. And now I could pay attention to something else without being overwhelmed. And, and yeah, our brain are, are very well set up to acquire that kind of knowledge and stimulus response actions, as long, obviously, as, as they're consistent. It's it's not like, for instance, that the learning you can have with any working memory task will generalize to all working memory tasks. There was for a while excitement about some possibility that some programs that require in intelligent thinking, uh, even thinking about, so for instance, Sudoku, for instance, the idea that if you uh, practice multitasking in general, or if you um, do crossword puzzles or Sudoku, for instance, that there would be a, a general uh, benefit to, in the case of working memory tasks, for instance, all other working memory tasks. That's not really true. The, the practices we get is more specific to the circumstances in which you have the specific stimuli and response associated with these stimuli. Well, what's it called when, when a task becomes just automatic? You don't have to think about it. Like I would think 
researchers have to have done like fMRI and you know had people do a task and you know watch what happens to the brain when it becomes like just instinctive or automatic we didn't have to think about it anymore I would think that parts of the brain go quiet that were formerly active you know there's probably enough going on where it's being monitored the activity and everything on some level but you know what is that called and again has anyone studied it and what have they seen with that is that I don't know. It just seems like that would be a, a very important thing. Yes. So first, I, I just wanted to add with uh, respect to my previous point, and it's, I'm not saying that uh, doing mental exercise every day, like Sudoku or a crossword puzzle is not beneficial. In fact, there's really good evidence that it helped keeping your brain healthy for a longer amount of time. I'm, I'm talking about how Becoming really good in one specific cognitive domain does not necessarily generalize to all cognitive domains. Now, with respect to your question, yes, there have been studies that have looked at the effect of practice, learning, or more specifically, the word I think you, you might be referring to is automatization. You know, you, something becomes more automatic. And, and what we usually see with uh, those studies is that the cerebral cortex, as you know, the area of our brain that has been primarily associated with higher cognitive functions and adaptive behavior, are strongly activated uh, when you first learn those tasks. But as they become more automatic, there seems to be more of a subcortical circuit the basal ganglia and the cerebellum that seem to kick in more and uh, the contribution of the cerebral cortex is decreased, attenuated with automatization of behavior. Okay, so how much of a savings is there? I don't know if you can, uh, you know, has anyone, has anyone characterized, all right, levels of brain usage or output? I don't know, how they would get, you know maybe in calories consumed per second or... Uh, areas that light up or the number of cells that are engaged in a particular mental activity. Has anyone been able to characterize, um, again, the amount of brain that is being used for a particular task? It's it's a good question. It's, it's hard to to really quantify that. Usually, as, as we come better, for instance, at recognizing just images that we've seen a few times, there is what we call parser coding in the brain. At the beginning, there are many neurons that respond to each of the images, but as you become familiar with those images, there are fewer and fewer of those neurons that respond to those images. They may respond more, but there are fewer of them. This is what we call sparse coding in, 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 in the brain, which allows the brain to be more efficient at processing these images because then the other neurons can be free to process other information. But with respect to um, energy demands, it's actually a really interesting question because this is one of the things that computer scientists and computer engineers would, would love to be able to emulate from the brain is that, okay, it even though it's only 2% of our body weight, it consumes 20% of our metabolic energy. It's quite highly demanded. But the power that our brain relies on is about the equivalent of a 20-watt ball. It's not that much power. Far, far less than power. Power is only one way. I mean, like you said, it consumes a very large part of our, I guess you could say, metabolism. So it's not just a um, power in an electrical sense, but uh, power in another sense. It requires a lot of uh, ATP, let's say, to run, or 
you know, other constituents that, that are expensive, let's say, to produce. Absolutely. Yes. And it is even at the resting state. And in fact, there is not that much overall change whether someone becomes more cognitively active versus at rest. What, what really changes is the regional distribution of the energy across the brain when you become engaged in tasks. But it, it is constitutively really demanding metabolically, especially with respect to its weight in our body. But it is far less energy consuming than computers are and, mm. and do not create these heating issues that are associated with computers. Mm. The, the efficiency that our brain is running is is spectacular. And that's something hmm. that right now, computer engineering does not approximate. Hmm. Interesting. If a brain really was uh, recreated, you know, using computer circuitry, transistors, et cetera, how much power would it consume? Has anyone modeled that? Yes, there have been estimates. I Off the top of my head, I don't remember what they are, but they're... I'm, I, Multiples, I would guess, right? Oh, by far. You know, like the order of magnitude, is it 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times? I think so. higher than 1,000 times. Wow. Okay. Pretty impressive. That's crazy. Yeah, just like DNA storing information. Supposedly, it's uh, it's far denser than any media we've ever created so far to store information. Yeah. And, and that's another fascinating aspect in, in terms of capacity, you know, storage capacity. On the one hand, when you talk about working memory capacity, it's very limited, right? It's hard to remember a number. But on the other hand, our long-term memory is a lot better. We know we remember events and information that has happened through most of our lifespan, and some some of which may seem random. But we have a really impressive long-term memory capacity compared to, to our working memory capacity. Now, there have been different estimates of what that long-term memory uh, capacity may be. From a theoretical perspective, if, and if one assumes that memories are stored at synapses and each synapse can have a different bit of information about memory, then it's been estimated that we can store as much as more than a petabyte of information in our brain, which is a million gigabytes. Again, that's those are estimates, and no one remembers that much information. But just to put it in perspective, much information that there is on the World Wide Web's. Interesting. Well, I mean, again, assuming the brain is made this way for a reason, like working memory. You know, there's there's remembering, let's say, a phone number, but then what do you do with? So there's the information that, let's say, you know, maybe we, we complain, uh, how come we don't have more in our working memory? How come we can't hold more in our mind? But beyond that information that's trying to be held in the mind, there's using that information to do something else. You know, I know, you know, Renee's phone number, so okay, I can call him, great. You know, what else do I have to store about him? Well, maybe nothing, I, I don't know, maybe other stuff gets stored at different spots. And maybe the reason that working memory seems limited is that information, again, is only a small part of it. It's the doing of something with the information that maybe is the predominant thing. So maybe we do have a lot of capacity just in a different way than a computer would have. Well, 
I, we, we can talk to you about the analogy with a computer because uh, in more if you'd like, because there, I think there are both similarities and huge differences in terms of how computing is done versus computers. Let's point that out. But, yeah. but before going there, just, I think you, you made an insightful point, which is that when we talk about working memory, we, we often dissociate between two different types. One is the online storage of information, right? So somebody gives you their number and you keep it in mind. But then you have to punch it in your cell phone. Then uh, that requires acting on that information. That's called executive uh, working memory as, as opposed to just storing information. And that's really limiting. It's hard to do more of one of these executive tasks at the time and can interfere with the information that you're maintaining online as well. So your your insight is is a good one that even when we talk about working memory, we, we should dissociate between just maintaining information online, you know, in our attention and manipulating that information. And we're really limited in, in manipulating that information. It's like doing one task and, and we're really bad at doing more than one task at a time. Well, again, what if I was in a room with like five people that would try to attack me? I only have two arms and two legs. How am I supposed to fight all the people at once? You know, in the movies, they show it all that someone will beat off all their attackers. But in real life, you couldn't manage that. Well, it was such thing. Maybe the amount of information is my guess is it was probably just right for us to be able to do whatever it is we need to do with that information. And having more, maybe we couldn't do anything with it. It would just cause clutter and problems. If you were stuck with uh, five uh, people who would want to fight you, I would suggest doing the other possible response, which is flight. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> with a point eight, that's right. No, no. Look, yes, yes, I see your point, And I think I agree with it as well. We have to understand that our brains didn't evolve is in a vacuum. We, as I mentioned before, we have this limited number of effector organs that we can act upon on things in the environment. And we were not, we did, our brains didn't evolve being bombarded with such amount of information that we now have on, you know, at an hourly basis than we used to. So um, I, I think there's truth to what you're saying here. You know, I like think, think if you go to a really great party, you know, there's people that are extroverts, there's people that are introverts. Introverts tend to be drained by social experience from what I've seen. And even extroverts, you know, if you go to, if you're like a real social person and you go to a party and you talk to a bunch of people, you're there for a few hours, you're tired anyway. But, you know, who can spend that much energy and effort and, you know, have plenty of reserve anyway? So that would deplete anybody, I would think, after a few hours, you know, if you're a dance party or whatever it is, or a nightclub, or you're just at a party where there's a lot of people you know, you know, I don't know, let's say your wedding, you have to go around and say hello to all the guests. And by the end of it, you're like, oh, you're dead, really tired. So, well, um, yeah, we shouldn't forget that our brain is like a muscle. If, if we use it, it gets stronger, but also it gets tired as well. And it needs to replenish itself. It needs rest. It, it undergoes fatigue. Uh, as well, this is why sleep is, well, it's one of the reasons sleep is, is very important. So yes, it's a, it's a metabolically demanding organ and it certainly also uh, undergoes, uh, fatigue as well in different aspects and, and it mm -hmm. needs rest and it's, it needs its care as well. Yeah, um, one more thing years ago, I don't know why I was sitting in a Starbucks and looking at all the people and 
don't know, I was talking to somebody and I realized I just didn't even see or know what was in the room besides the person I was talking to. So then I, I imagined I was looking down from above and I was looking at everyone's like cone of attention. And I imagined that's what it would look like if you, let's say you imagine a flashlight pointing outwards to the head, everyone's forehead. That's probably what their attention would look like. Mm-hmm. They could only look at and, you know, pay attention to maybe one or two things at a time. You know, this cone, again, of attention. And outside of that, you see nothing, you hear nothing, you have no idea who's in the room or what's going on or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So even the way people look around and process the world, they're not seeing in 360. They're not even paying attention. You know, I would guess what it's a 60 degree angle, maybe at most 90. So the rest of the 360, you have no idea what's going on. You don't hear it. You don't see it. You, you, know, you may hear something in turn or you may feel something in turn, but even your existence, is, uh, again, there's this cone of attention. How does that, I don't know if, if you thought about that or about how does that reconcile with all the stuff we're talking about? Well, even more humbling than that is not just what is not accessible to your vision because we don't see in the back of our head. It's even what we see with, uh, with our eyes. Uh, it's been estimated. And again, I, I want the listener to realize that these numbers are, are just suggestive. They are a little bit theoretical estimations. But the point mm. is that there are large differences in, in different aspects, like the one I'm just about to mention, which is that we have about a million cells that go from our eyes to our brain. And it's estimated that they process about maybe 10 megabits of per second of information. That's, that's a lot. That's like, uh, you know, and I think I like an eternal connection. On the other hand, we're not aware and we do not pay attention for all of all of that information, if anything, just to a really small subset of it. It's been estimated again that what we can pay attention to maybe is as low as 40 bits per second of that information that is available to, to us. There are a lot of tricks that cognitive psychologists have used, clever tricks, clever experiments in the lab that demonstrate this phenomenon that even though you believe that you're really aware of everything that you see in your field of view, that in fact, um, we can change things in the environment and you're not even aware of them. It's called inattentional blindness because it's not the blindness due to the fact that you don't see. It's a blindness to the fact that you're not paying attention to it, even though your eyes are registering that information. Mm. So what's the goal of all this? To understand or to build a better brain or to help people somehow overcome some of these, you know, perceived limitations? Like what what would be a happy goal for you? All of the above. <laughs> I'm, I I think it's nice to to set a lofty goal. I, I think there for me there there are several fold. One is to understand ourselves. I think that it is a fascinating question, not only about what is our potential capacity limits, but also how it it's related to awareness, consciousness, working memory, and decision-making. I mean, this is fundamental to the human experience. So on the one hand is to understand how the brain beheads the mind. But at the same time, there are so many repercussions from that research that can happen, including, for instance, uh, something that I'm really interested in is attention deficit disorders. 
there's what exactly happens in the brains of individuals who have a problem paying attention and maintaining attention to a certain task. Again, in, in the family, there's some persons close to me that suffer from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And mm. I hope that the research that we're doing will help understanding once we understand better what is in a typical brain, what may be different in, in those who exhibit attention deficit disorders. And I think that from there's also from a technological standpoint as well, as I mentioned to you, our brains have massive parallel processing capacity. It's very different from a computer to some extent, because as you know, a computer has a central processing unit, a chip that essentially is really, really fast at processing information, but it pulls information from storage and processes it and, and, and returns it to storage. And that takes time, that takes energy, that creates heat. Our brains are not, on the one hand, our brains are much more organized in a massive parallel processing uh, way. As I mentioned, uh, the, the, the processing and the storage of information is, can be seen in single synapses. And we have trillions of those synapses. But at the same time, there we do share a similarity with computers in the sense that we seem to have a neural network that allows us to flexibly learn new tasks, but that it comes at the ability to be able to more than one task at a time. And in some sense, it's a little bit of a higher level central processing unit that we have for new information. So in that sense, at one level, at a higher level, uh, we may have a, a bottleneck of information processing in the same way that computers have with having the information needing to go through a central processing unit to function. But at a, at a subcellular, at the cellular level or on subcellular level, we have massive parallel processing capacity, as I mentioned, with with all the synaptic connections. So I think that as we understand better the information processing in, in the human brain, and, and, and as I mentioned, we're able to do that in a highly energy efficient way. There will be good ways that as we understand better how the human brain functions, that we're able to develop novel computer system hardware system, not just software, but hardware, hardware that will be a lot more energy efficient, for instance, and, and will create more of a, instead of just artificial intelligence, more of artificial general intelligence that will be much more flexible than the kind of artificial intelligence that we currently have. So mm. I, I think from a technological standpoint as, as well, I think that understanding the brain may help in designing new information systems. In fact, there's uh, there's a subfield called a neuromorphic computing, which is trying to develop uh, hardware systems, computer systems that are more biologically uh, mimicking the brain than the typical uh, von Neumann computer system that we currently have. Mm, okay. Well, very good. Renee, we're, we're just about out of time, but where can people follow your work? You know, it sounds like there's a lot going on with what you're doing and a lot of possible breakthroughs are there. 
So again, where can people follow up on uh, on what you're doing? It's easy. They just have to Google my name, and I think uh, Google. <laughs> I will show up as one of the first, if not the first hit with Vanderbilt and they will bring you to my uh, lab website and people can get in touch with me with my email that is addressed there. I also just uh, finished writing a book. It's it's for the general public to excite them about the human brain. Um, it's I hope that it will be published uh, later this year. And it's it was a labor of love. And it's to convey both the the scientific beauty of neuroscience and the conceptual beauty of the brain as as, as well. So I'm 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 looking forward for that book to uh, come out, and and hopefully that will help excite people uh, about the brain in general and about their own brain, and and that they will be mindful and careful about their own brain. We have to realize that. Our brain is probably the most protected and shielded organ that we have. And it's not only with the, the skull that wraps around it and the, the scalp above it, but all of the different connective tissue layers underneath the skull that cushions the brain, the, the chemical barriers that prevents from some noxious chemicals to access the brain, it's it's in a very highly regulated and and uh, shielded organ for a good reason because it processes information. It depends on electrical and chemical energy in a very balanced way that allows us to be able to talk with one another, enjoy music, and think about our own existence. I think we should be very careful about our brain. And I hope that the more we're fascinated about it, the more we're going to take care of both our physical health and our mental health. Okay. Very good. Very good. Renee, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.